morning, and welcome to episode 850 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by our Patreon supporters and the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Yo. We are talking about the Cleveland Indians today, our last American League team to preview. Later on in this episode, George Bissell will be talking to Jordan Bastian, who covers the Indians for MLB.com. We will be talking to a writer and editor and a writer of the BP Annual Essay about the Indians, Pete Beatty. Hey, Pete. Hey, how's it going? All right. So as you pointed out in your essay, the Sports Illustrated prediction that the Indians would win the World Series only really looks bad if you look at the actual standings, which to be fair, a lot of people do because they they kind of count. But there are ways in which the Indians were really good. By third order record, they should have won the AL Central. So why did they not do what the numbers said that they should have done? For the first, I was actually in Cleveland last year and I had a a season ticket. And I can tell you, um, the first half of the season, their defense was hilariously bad. They're really, really bad. Um, There's just some bad luck, too. Um, Their hit sequencing was not great. Uh, They didn't have a great... Uh, sort of batting average or bad bet with um, with guys on base. And in general, I think they just sort of, they didn't put their best team on the field for a big chunk of the season. They also have a sort of an incipient tradition of um, playing terribly in April, which um, is a bad idea. It turns out it's a bad idea to play badly at any point during the regular season. When you say that the defense was terrible, I, w- I want to know how it was terrible. And partly I mean like, how was it terrible? Like what? Like why was it so bad? But more, I, I kind of want to know, like why was it so bad? Like, do you get the feeling that that was part of the strategy? Was it like part of their aim to prioritize other things over defense, or did like their plans just go belly up? I mean, I mean, wh- what does it say anything about the Indians? I guess priorities as an organization that they were in the position they were midway through the season, as well as of course that they were in the position they were at the end of the season, having uh, as you'll explain, vastly upgraded. Yeah, I, I mean, I think part of it was. Um, I don't think they're they're sort of doing that. They're not. They weren't punting run prevention defensively. They were running Brandon Moss out in right field, uh, a combination of you know Brandon Moss and, and and David Murphy and Ryan Rayburn, who aren't terrible. Um, they sort of they're just not rangy. You know, they're just balls they're not going to get to. Jose Ramirez, who's actually sort of has graded out and looked like a competent fielder at a bunch of positions, and definitely has the physical tools to play shortstop in the major leagues just made a lot of rookie mistakes, you know, to be, to use an, a scientific term, uh, just booting balls, um, not sort of shading guys the right way. Lonnie Chisholm isn't great at third base. Um, a lot of, particularly airmail throws. And, well, you know, and I, I definitely think that, you know, it's easy to say like, oh, you know, they could have called up Francisco Lindor at any point and fixed their shortstop defense, but he wasn't ready. And I think they were doing a little bit of, a little bit of service time clock uh management too with him but um jason kipnis isn't great at second base he's he's fine um michael Bourne, who was the center fielder for a big chunk of last year is a guy who i think has a reputation as a good fielder or or did when his legs worked better um who wasn't great brantley looks good he's smooth but he's again not a superstar fielder wise his bat more than makes up for it so i think it was just a combination of a lot of a lot of little clutches not working out kind of a little little pit you know patches that just didn't didn't pan out very well along with some atypical performance 
What was Lindor really not ready, or was it just assumed that he wasn't ready? I mean, he came up and was immediately awesome, and in fact, much better than he was at AAA. Is there a uh, is there an origin story for how he became a superhero between AAA and the majors that people tell? He actually looked a little lost for his first month in the majors. If you look at his splits, um, he did not hit particularly well for the first month that he was up, and then hit really well for the rest of the season to the point where people were saying rookie of the year was really almost a dead heat between him and Correa. If the Astros want to trade us Carlos Correa for Francisco Lindor, I'll do it. Um, you know, Lindor's great. He's going to be a really, really good defensive shortstop with a, you know, kind of a, a B plus bat, but he's not going to hit for power like that. I think the going theory in Cleveland is just he was ready to go and a little bit stir crazy um, in AAA. You know, he, he knew he was going to be in, in the majors sooner than later. And I think he just wasn't, maybe wasn't working as hard as a guy who would be a little bit hungrier, you know, to prove something. There was no way Francisco Lindor wasn't going to wind up in the majors at some point last year. It was just a question of when. I, as a Cleveland sports fan, I sort of trained myself and been, you know, brutally trained to um, expect the worst. So I'm just assuming that his bat is going to play a little bit closer to what he did in the minors or what he showed in the minors than what he did last year when he was kind of like Omar Vizquel, you know, with power. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that might be too much to hope for. So you mentioned in your essay that the Indians are basically the, the worst attendance team outside of Florida. And there's been a lot of consternation about why that is and hand-wringing and confusion. But as you sort of posited, it's it's not actually all that confusing. It's, it's kind of the norm. Yeah. You know, I actually, as an Indians fan, I feel um, a little bit ashamed <laughs> of our fan base because I think that it's a really well-run franchise. Um, and they almost snuck into the World Series in 2007. They've been consistently competitive, except for a few quick retools since, you know, so about 2005. They're not boring to watch, you know, and uh, I just, it's it's hard to explain, or it's hard to fathom why, if you're a baseball fan, you wouldn't want to go watch this team, except what that what that line of sort of argument presumes is that there are a lot of baseball fans in Cleveland, which uh, apparently is not the case. <laughs> um, you know, it's a the ballpark's new enough that it's still nice. They redid it. They put in, you know, a bar and a corner and outfield and they got fancy ice cream and fancy tacos as opposed to just normal ice cream and normal tacos. So, you know Do they have Choco Tacos though? You know, I don't know if they have Choco Tacos. Mm. It's a, you know, they're trying to provide a premium ballpark experience and Choco Taco really, to me, that says like lunchroom dessert cooler more huh. than like, you know, <laughs> uh, rare, rare entertainment experience. And it's weird. It's really weird because downtown Cleveland, not to get into like uh, real estate trends or anything, more people are living and playing in downtown Cleveland than have been at any point in my life, you know, in my in my three decades and change um, on earth. So you'd think if anything, there would be more people going to the ballpark. But no, it's not working. Whatever they're trying is not working. Do you think that in 25 years there will be baseball in Cleveland? And do you think that in 25 years, that baseball team will be named the Indians? That's an excellent two-part question, one that I have particularly strong feelings about, uh, particularly the second half. Will there be a team, a big league team in Cleveland in 25 years? Uh, probably, because it just seems like the owners... I can't imagine why MLB would kind of ice out a franchise unless the owner just, you know, the Dolans sell the team and, and you know, somebody wants to move maybe says maybe they intentionally field a bad team to try to move to Miami and someone makes a, uh, a foul mouthed classic comedy about it. I think it'll, they'll probably be there. The second part is harder to answer. I actually almost turned in my 
essay about the team and just used um, my preferred uh, uh, nomenclature for the team is just to call them the spiders because I think Indians is uh, offensive. If I was doing triage and saying what's the most offensive thing about the team, it's Chief Wahoo. And the team knows that. They won't say it in public. They're, they've sort of been slowly phasing Chief Wahoo out. He's not really a presence at the ballpark except on the team's hats, um, which is, as it turns out, a pretty prominent part of their uh, – <laughs> It's hard to take a picture of a baseball player without getting their hat in it. But they, they definitely are kind of doing like quietly walking back Chief Wahoo. People in Cleveland love Chief Wahoo to, to a point where, you know, I was living not in Cleveland for a long time. And I would occasionally, you know, be talking to people or say something on social media about like, yeah, Chief Wahoo is embarrassing. This is, you, know, it, you know, particularly I think they showed up in the wild card game uh, in 2013. And these two people, uh, I'm not going to use uh, a stronger uh, epithet for them, uh, come to the ballpark in red face, which is, I mean, just beyond the pale. I mean, like really, really offensive. And you have to be kind of a sort of a willfully ignorant to not understand why that's offensive. But people in Cleveland have sort of internalized Chief Wahoo where, to the point where he doesn't represent uh, Native Americans anymore. He represents Cleveland. And there's also just sort of like a, if your parents, if you know, the people who taught you to be an Indians fan taught you to love Chief Wahoo, when somebody comes to you, even if it's, you know, somebody who lives in Cleveland and loves the team exactly as much says chief Wahoo has to go. You feel really threatened. Um, I don't dis, I don't agree with that threatenedness. And I, I would hope that people could kind of get a little bit smarter about it. But at the same time, I, I do understand why some people really kind of bitterly cling to chief Wahoo. But um, I have a feeling chief Wahoo will be gone within, I'd say 10 years is probably a conservative estimate of how long it'll take. And Unfortunately, I think the Indians nickname is probably going to stick around. When I win Powerball um, sometime next year, I'm going to buy the team and rename them the Spiders. So The nice takeaway from this offseason, I suppose, is that Cleveland didn't really lose anyone significant. The negative spin is that they didn't add a whole lot either. Mike Napoli is kind of the, the headliner and there's not a whole lot after him. So the payroll is essentially unchanged from last season, still in the bottom 10. Is there much indignation about this? Is there frustration with ownership? Or is it just sort of understood that this is a small market and fans aren't buying tickets? And so ownership shouldn't be expected to spend? Or or does the not buying tickets come from ownership not spending? It's uh, which, which way does that flow? I mean, I feel like the talk radio narrative in Cleveland is just like the Dolans are cheap. This is why we can't have nice things. But the the converse of that narrative or that sort of discontent is we should have signed we should have signed the most expensive guy, you know, or we should trade Carlos Santana for, you know, for Paul Goldschmidt, which is obviously you know not going to happen. From from where I sit, I'm happy with the kind of like like buying from the scratch and dent section of the store. We're like, oh, you know, Mike Napoli has like the hips of a elderly German shepherd, but whatever, you know, he has a little bit of power. Um, the Indians are really, really smart about platooning and you know, whatever it's, it's kind of a, it's a lot of ticket. It's a lot of ticket in a game where you can only win 50 bucks, but you know, it's, <laughs> I, I would have liked, I think the, the frustration for me is that the Indians don't seem to be developing a lot of bats. They just haven't really had a power prospect come through their system and get finished in a long time. But I think that your average Indians fan is just like, People are still mad that like the Indians in the 90s didn't trade for Mike Messina or Kurt Schilling when they were really good. And I think that like that chip on the shoulder has really <laughs> never gone away. It's just been sort of dedicated to the different to different gripes over time. <laughs> I'm fine, you know, Rajai Davis, um, 
Napoli. Uh, I actually thought that signing up Marlon Bird, I thought they were pretty smart, pretty slick little um, kind of deep discount buys. It's crazy too because the if any fan base should be at least for the for the moment not be clamoring for big free agents. I mean, the Indians probably are in the playoffs last year if not for signing Michael Bourne and Nick Swisher some years ago. Like that is the expense on them as well as the, you know, 150 horrible games that they collectively played together is a pretty good argument against signing big free agents in their 30s. Like that's what you point to as evidence and it's like right there in front of them. Yeah. I think part of it is just like people like you know, in you know, when I lived in New York, there was always the sense of like the Mets were constantly making roster moves or trades that seemed to be designed to satisfy the people who designed the back page of the New York Daily News or the Post, um, just to like make noise. And the Indians just can't can't really be in that business. Um, they can't they can't play at that that table. But yeah, you would think that the you know the sort of fart smell of the Bourne and Swisher contracts, which is not completely cleared out of <laughs> of that team, right, of their roster construction, they're still suffering under the money they had to send to Atlanta to get them to take um, their sort of, you know, beached carcasses. Yeah. You would think, you'd think people would be aware, but they're not um, sort of an object lesson in, in uh, human psychology. The top of their rotation is extremely good with Kluber and Carrasco and Salazar. What is your best bet for who starts game four of an ALDS? Is it Bauer? Is it Tomlin? Is it Anderson? Are they, uh, is it somebody that they trade for at the deadline, finally spending that money that the fans wanted them to spend uh, this offseason? Or do they just go with three and Kluber starts game four as well? Mm, they're pretty, the team is pretty conservative with pitcher usage. So I can't imagine them going on short rest. The, uh, I, my, my guess, honestly, would probably be, it would be a Cody Anderson type guy. Or, you know, they could they could do, you know, wind up trading for, you know, this year's equivalent of, you know, like Jason Hamill or somebody like that. They're obviously not going to get Jason Hamill because the Cubs won't, they'll be in the playoffs and they won't be selling. But that kind of guy, you know, sort of a, you know, the third cheapest <laughs> product on the uh, stretch run pickup type guy. I would love, like, personally, I love Trevor Bauer. I think he has a lot of potential. I also suspect he's never going to figure it out just in terms he's never going to get his walks down he's just that's just not how he works as a pitcher he's always tinkering he's always I saw a lot of Trevor Bauer starts last year where he was trying to paint and it wasn't working and he got it he got irritated and started making bad pitches and then he sort of has this like upset teenager face that comes out and when when Trevor Bauer starts making the face like nothing good has ever happened after that uh, <laughs> So my prediction for game four of the uh, of the ALDS is that the Indians lose like nine to three, and then they finish up the series when Kluber comes back. You mentioned Carl Santana, who is coming off his worst full season, and yet even his worst full season, which was bad maybe because of a, a back problem, wasn't all that bad. He was still an above average hitter. And since he debuted in 2010, he has been the most valuable player on this franchise. And yet I've gathered that he is not beloved by this fan base. August Fagerstrom tweeted a Carlos Santana narrative buster earlier this winter, a one-stop shop for shooting down all the bad Carlos Santana takes. So why are there so many bad Carlos Santana takes? Uh, his batting average. Uh-huh. His batting average, um, He he's actually a really thoughtful guy, really smart, sort of has a reputation of being a little bit of a loner in the clubhouse, I think. Pretty quiet. So he's not like a top rail of the dugout, you know, hopping up and down, excited guy. I think that's a little bit of part of it. I really do think it's like I cannot 
it's the batting average. His batting average, look, the optics on his batting average are bad. And a lot of baseball fans, I think probably the majority of baseball fans still use batting average as their go-to. Is this guy good or not? Um, there's also this sort of like all, you know, the classic like Dusty Baker, like all walks do or clog up the bases. Because uh-huh. his, you know, his, his eye, his plate discipline is so good. He walks so much. Even when he's hitting so badly that you think there's really no reason for people to nibble. I think people, it's just, you know, it's sort of a kind of a chucklehead thing. His defense sucks too, um, not to put too fine a point on it. He is not a good defensive first baseman. <laughs> Which is okay because now he doesn't have to play defense, theoretically. Although now I'm picturing Mike Napoli on all fours with his legs in a little cart <laughs> now that you have summoned that image. So hopefully that doesn't happen at some point this season. So you you summed up the Shapiro era in your essay because it ended this offseason as did, I suppose, the Ross Atkins era. And it basically sounds like Billy Bean is more or less how you... It sounds like if Michael Lewis had waited a year or two to write Moneyball or had been from Cleveland or something, he could have written more or less exactly the same book about Cleveland. And it sounds like the mix, the the polarizing reaction to Shapiro is kind of along the same lines as Bean. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, the Indians were never quite as like, like the the plumbing works at Jacobs Field or Progressive Field. So, you know, they they sort of have some structural uh, advantages that maybe the A's in the Billy Bean era have not had. But yeah, I mean, I think it's just one of these things where this is like chapter, or this is sort of like the second order, the second derivative of like, my stuff doesn't work in the playoffs. Mm -hmm. This is like my stuff can't control Lock can't control sequencing. It can't control, you know, Trevor Bauer's attitude, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. And I, I assumed since, you know, Chernoff has been there forever and Antonetti has been there forever, there's no reason to think. And and I suppose this offseason only confirms that there's no reason to think that there's going to be some big break from the way that the team has operated for the last 10 or 15 years. I have rare and special insight into the Mike Chernoff <laughs> mindset because i actually slept on his couch once in the early 2000s um, he's the cousin of um of a good friend of mine from college uh-huh good couch comfy couch really solid really solid nice sort of like tudor style apartment building on uh mayfield road um it's a good choice in rental real estate good dude i was mostly just com- i mean at that point he was just like a f- sort of like an assistant assistant gm yeah but he told me about like playing cards with charles nagy you know, to like a 19, an Indians fan of my, of, of a certain age. That's like the coolest possible thing. No, but I don't, I don't think they're going to, I don't think they're going to upset the apple cart. You know, I don't think they're going to radically change stuff. I think in part because it's a pretty stable organization. You know, I think they value that. Francona is a, a really, really good. Sometimes he has some hiccups with his game managing, but I think as a clubhouse manager, he's fantastic. So I think, I think, you know, like I said in the essay, I think the 2016 Indians are really going to look a surprising amount like the 2015 Indians, just in terms of like the raw input for what they what they can do on the field. Mm-hmm. If you're a real baseball man, I think that all the seats in your house should be benches. <laughs> <laughs> I still have dreams of acquiring old wooden seats from Cleveland Municipal Stadium, which were really not... Uh, even by the standards of like stadium seating, not especially comfortable. Maybe one of the urinals too. Very cool urinals. I wonder why baseball is so wedded to the bench. It's, I mean, it, I, I can say, I imagine that the bench was originally chosen because it's very simple to manufacture, but I wonder like how disruptive it would be to the sport if some renegade team said, you know what, we're going to make movie style seating. Stadium seating? No, like in the dugout, you know, like, 
like there should be a seat on you know in the uh, in the dugout that uh you know respects our players backs yeah like racing seats like they have on the sidelines of soccer stadiums the uh or uh, the soccer pitch bean uh beanbag chairs beanbag chairs hammocks <laughs> yeah like a uh like a uh toddler uh uh bounce and play swing <laughs> that would actually be great i could sort of see like adult sized like rolling rolling bouncy seats with like little sort of like enrichment activities built in and like a food tray for you to spit your sun seed sun you know sunflower seeds into i, I don't think you know i think like seat sized hammocks or papasans like there's a lot of i think there's a lot of inefficiencies in the in the dugout seating arena that teams just aren't looking at for whatever reason um, and lastly i guess michael brantley it, it seems like kind of pushes this lineup from not good enough to good enough just kind of when i eyeball the depth chart it seems like the fall off from brantley to whoever would be filling in for brantley is pretty big and without brantley there are a couple kind of glaring holes so there's a lot riding on that shoulder right yeah, I mean, it, it, I feel I feel happier about it, not just for the Indians, but for my various fantasy teams where I had Brantley. Um, it seems like he hit a home run in his first appearance in the spring. He's ahead of schedule. Um, he he's a really really hardworking guy. Who's I mean, his swing is great, and he works very very hard on it. But yeah, I, you know, I feel better with the signings of uh, Marlon Bird and the fact that Tyler Naquin. I'm not totally sure that's how you say it, but sort of a very like Game of Thronesy last name. He's shown a little bit, but you know, when Abel Monte got got hit with the 80 game PED ban, the Indians outfield was there were definitely AAA outfields that were better than the Indians outfield for a solid chunk of this offseason. Yeah. So I, I think you know I'm excited about Bradley Zimmer. I think he could be a contributor this year. It doesn't seem like the team likes to do that with really young guys, but um you know, Zimmer and um, Clint Frazier are going to be up before too long. They don't profile as like huge corner bats, but they can hit um, and they can field too, especially in the case of Zimmer. So that'd be cool. Uh, but yeah, I, I sort of like, I may or may not have a Michael Brantley votive candle in my home that I, you know, sort of <laughs> put potato chips and oranges in front of to propitiate the gods. <laughs> All right. So give us your win total prediction. Is this going to be more like the actual record of the 2015 Indians or the third order record of the 2015 Indians? I think the Indians are going to win 91 games. Okay. So that's, uh, I guess, around what Pakota has, right? Pakota might even be slightly more optimistic. Pakota loves this team, but all right. That's very close to what they should have been theoretically last year. <laughs> yes. I think they will win uh, 91 first order games. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you can follow Pete on Twitter at Pete Beatty. You can find his writing online at PeteBeatty.org. .org. He's an organization. He's not just a dot com. organization. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And thank you for, for coming on. All right. Thanks, guys. Okay, so stay tuned to hear George talk to Jordan Bastion of MLB.com. Welcome back to Effectively Wild. I'm George Bissell of Baseball Prospectus. Joining me now is Jordan Bastion. He covers the Cleveland Indians for MLB.com. You can follow him on Twitter at MLBastion. Jordan, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. It's great to have you on the show. 
No problem. How you doing, George? Good. It's uh, exciting. We're wrapping up the American League, and that means that Baseball Prospectus' Pakota Projection System has forecast the Cleveland Indians to be the best team in the American League in 2016. Jordan, on a scale of 1 to 10, how surprising is that statement to you as someone who's covering this team on a daily basis? You know, you know, maybe not that surprising. So maybe I'd put it at like a 5. Uh, I think last year they were on the cover of Sports Illustrated, you know, one of the regional covers, and picked by the magazine to win the World Series. So there were lofty expectations a year ago. And really, when you look at the roster, outside of some complementary pieces, the roster's not really that changed. And now you have uh, a better defense and uh, a pretty talented young player in Francisco Lindor who's going to be up for a full season. And obviously a starting rotation that, you know, all the projection systems just love. So I think it's not that surprising that, you know, the preseason prognostications have pegged this team to be uh, one of the best in the American League, whether you're looking at Dakota or, or other outlets. I think Cleveland fans might be a little more skeptical just based on not only the recent history of this team, but sports in general in that city. You know, this team is, uh, this city is kind of starved for a winner across the board, and they always kind of have an eyebrow raised when uh, preseason expectations are incredibly high. But I think, like I said, when you look at the rotation, you look at the improved defense, which was dramatically improved over the course of the season last year, something you don't always see through the course of the confines of one year. Uh, I think those two areas are going to be going to have to be uh, the reason that this team succeeds. Run prevention is going to be the the buzz phrase this season because there are so many questions within that lineup. I promise if you're a Cleveland sports fan listening to this, we're not going to talk about the Browns. I can guarantee you that (laughs) right now. Thank you. Jordan, you listed a bunch of factors there, whether it's the defense or the rotation, but which of those factors do you think is going to be the most important, the variable that needs to go the Indians' way, if they're actually going to win the division this year? Which is the most important for this team that to carry over into this year? Yeah, I think the most promising thing we saw in the second half was the defense, as I kind of alluded to. Uh, when they brought Francisco Lindor up, You know that really solidified things up the middle. They had Giovanni Urshela at third base, who was very strong at third. He's going to actually start in AAA to open the year, but I'd be very surprised if he's not back with the Indians at some point. And then the move, uh, the surprising move, maybe the story of the season last year outside of Lindor, it was the move of Chisenhall from third base to right field, and all of a sudden it was like this Alex Gordon-esque transition, and he played gold glove caliber right field, one of the best in right field, you know, depending on how much pace you put into a small 300-inning sample size for, for outfield defense. He was kind of joking with me the other day that, you know, I kind of even reminded him that, well, you know, we'll see this year. That's not a huge sample size in terms of defensive metrics. He's like, hey, defensive metrics are what helped me last year. And, you know, he's like, you got to keep talking me up there. So, you know, it's, that'll be a fun one to watch to see how that carries over into the season to see if he is legitimately this elite right fielder. Um, and I think the continuation of that defense is going to be huge because, as I mentioned earlier, there are question marks with this lineup. You know, you're not sure if this lineup's going to be, you know, turning out a lot of runs. It could be just sort of a middle-of-the-pack offense like it was last year. But I think the Royals showed you can be a middle-of-the-pack offense and, and win uh, with great defense and bullpen and, and things like that of that nature. So pitching and defense is going to be huge. And I think we saw within the rotation last year, if you look at strikeouts per nine or BAPIP or ground ball rate, there were all indications within those numbers that there was maybe more trust in the defense. 
um, that Corey Kluber didn't feel like he had to strike 18 out every time when he took the mound. Mm-hmm. You know, I think just even if it's subtle, even if it's that mental uh, trust that you can't quantify, you know, that can go a long way when, when you know I can, I can maybe induce early contact rather than needing to strike this guy out. What's the latest on Michael Brantley's health, and do you believe he's going to be in the lineup on opening day, which is something he's talked about a lot this spring? Yeah, you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I think I would have sounded a lot more optimistic about his chances of being there for opening day. Um, but after he played in a couple games, and his first game back just fed the optimism. He threw a guy out of the plate. He watched a home run. I mean, he drilled a pitch to the wall in center. It was like, all right, Michael Brantley's back. He's going to be in the lineup. But played a couple games and then kind of came away with a little bit of soreness. And to his credit, um, he was very upfront and honest with the training staff and said, hey, I, I didn't bounce back like I thought I was going to or like he's bounced back throughout the hitting progression um, this spring. So it's looking like he's going to open on the 15-day disabled list, which kind of was the expectation when camp opened. It's just there was a moment there when, when we kind of were starting to drink the Kool-Aid that Brantley would be able to to beat the, the timetable and be there on opening day. And I think it's important that he's realizing that opening day is such an artificial deadline that if it's April 15th and, and he's more confident that he can play full games back-to-back and not have to be, you know, sort of given a rest day here and there, you know, that's what's most important for him. He's so valuable to his team. You don't want him coming back, uh, having lingering soreness, or even maybe feeling great in April, and, and then we get to July August and, and maybe he starts dragging more and he's not able to keep that bat consistently through the zone, which is so critical for him as a high contact uh, hitter. And if that contact rate goes down at all, you know, his value is going to go down. And, and I, don't, I know he has an understanding of who he is as a hitter and also just how valuable he is to this team. So the outfield puzzle is a little more complicated and I think you're going to see a lot more platooning, mixing and matching uh, when we get to April. How big of an impact has Terry Francona had on this team since he's come over from the Red Sox? He was out of baseball for a year, I believe, before taking the Indians job. Uh, how big has it been for Cleveland to have him at the helm, so to speak? Because he's a real players manager. It feels like the team really responds to him and that he's done a really great job since taking over. Yeah, I mean, the it's been tremendous since Francona's been here. He's not a manager who's shy about walking into the clubhouse and you know being one of the guys when it's appropriate. And then, you know, building that sort of friendly bond with them. But at the same time, knowing that there are times where he does have to be the boss and he has to be tough. And, and it's, it's, he, he really walks that, that fine line. It's a delicate balance when you're going to be a really big players manager, but still have to be that authority figure. You know, there is a, a balance you have to strike there. And I, you know, I've been around a few managers and, you know, he's probably toes that line the best that I've seen. And the other thing that I have really been impressed with since he's been here is sort of tearing down the wall between the front office and the coaching staff and the clubhouse. Uh, we see front office guys down, you know, not necessarily in the clubhouse. Sometimes on the road you'll see one in the clubhouse if he's, you know, traveling with the team. But, you know, they're down around the coaches all the time. There's not this divide. You know, they're up front with players uh, when they're trying to make changes or when they're introducing analytics into something. You know, it's a discussion between not just the coaches and Francona and the players, but a lot of times a front office member is there too to make sure that, you know, it's a, it's a sort of group effort in explaining things. You know, I think other teams will say that it's more of a drastic wall between the front office and, and the team. And so I've been really impressed with how he's sort of integrated everyone, uh, into the environment around the clubhouse. 
And it's important, I think, for a team like the Indians to do that because they need to find ways to create advantages in areas where other teams maybe don't need to worry as much. If they, another team has more resources and can kind of uh, pay pay away some of their problems, you know, where the Indians can't. They can't go out and get the huge free agent. You know, so they need to try and find little advantages. And if it's a, if it's something as small as having a more integrated environment around the clubhouse, you know, Frank Cohn is going to try and do that, and he has tried to do that, and I think it's been very impressive. Francisco Lindor hasn't garnered the attention nationally that Carlos Correa has since his debut, but according to Baseball Reference, Lindor was worth 4.6 wins above replacement in 99 games. He's a 21-year-old rookie last season. Is there a legitimate case to be uh, to be made, given his otherworldly defensive contributions, that he's maybe the best shortstop in the American League already? Or is that still up for debate? Well, for, I mean, first of all, how, how much fun is this going to be for the next decade to kind of watch these guys develop as a group, you know, between Lindor and Correa and, you know, Bogarts and some of these other guys. It, it's really fun to see this sort of next wave of young shortstops coming up. And, you know, that was uh, it was an interesting Rookie of the Year debate last year because I think mm-hmm. there were a lot of people who did feel Lindor was more deserving, but it's hard to argue against picking uh, Korea there as well. But yeah, I think you could make that argument given his all around game. Uh, he's, he could be the best shortstop, uh, in baseball. And I think it's a little too early to start make that claim because he's only played 99 games, as you mentioned. But what he brought on the field and, and behind the scenes last year, I mean, this team was sort of spinning its wheels and sort of feeling, uh, that, that pressure of, you know, falling below the expectations that existed last year. And when the Indians made some drastic moves in the middle of the year, trading away some of the veterans, bringing in some youth, I think you could really see Lindor's comfort level of being himself around what is already a, a youngish team. And that energy that he brought on the field was very evident, and it rubbed off on some of the guys. I think some of that staleness we were feeling in the clubhouse midseason was quickly eradicated, and I think a lot of the credit goes to Lindor. And those are things people that are around the team every day saw that you know, people who, who only watch him through the highlight reels didn't get to see, but I thought that he was very impactful uh, behind the scenes last year as well. What are the team's expectations for Lindor offensively? Because it's fair to say that he exceeded even probably the most um, wildly optimistic expectations at the plate last year. So what are they expecting from him this year in his sophomore campaign? Yeah, I think the expectations are maybe somewhere uh, between what he's done in the minors and what he did last season. I think you don't jump from a, well, I mean, off the top of my head, it was like a 380 slugging in the minor leagues to a almost a 100-point jump in slugging percentage in the major leagues. I mean, you almost can't expect that to be sustained. You know, this is a kid that got really hot in the summer months and really performed well, and with that confidence, you know, the production kept kept going up as well. So I think the expectations are for Maybe I think what we saw was the best-case scenario, Lindor, down the stretch. I've told the story a few times, but my, my the thing that spoke to me the most about Lindor last season was when he was going through his struggles at the beginning, his first 100 at-bats, I think he was hitting about 200. Uh, a lot of times uh, a young player, especially a player as young as Lindor, will come up, run into struggles, and they see that batting average up on the scoreboard, and they get overwhelmed, and they think they need to go tinker in the batting cage and you know, change their approach and, and try and figure out what they can do to fix it. And what he leaned on was the idea that, you know, his approach was working. He was running into hard outs and that he didn't need to change anything. And he actually cited his hard hit ball rate. And, 
how the hitting coach Ty Van Berkeley would kind of relayed to him, you know, how how much hard contact he was making and how they were turning into outs. Um, so I thought that spoke to some maturity on his part that, you know, he wasn't panicking and he was relying on some data to show him that his self-confidence and his belief in his approach were actually being supported by some data that if he just stayed with it, it would eventually turn around and the hits would start falling. And boy, did they ever. I mean, I think he had the most hits in the American League in the second half and it really turned in an incredible season. So I thought that really spoke to his maturity and sort of his competence, you know, as a young player. Moving over to the rotation side, I don't think pitching coach Mickey Callaway gets enough credit uh, for what he's done with this staff over the last few years. When you look at the transformation of guys like Kluber and uh, another guy, Carlos Carrasco, who's really evolved into a legitimate Cy Young candidate. What's been the biggest change that they've made with Carrasco that's enabled him to pitch like an ace? Because it felt like two years ago, uh, this was a guy who was pitching in middle relief, and, and then all of a sudden, uh, his mechanics fell into place working with Callaway. So what's been the biggest shift they've made with Carrasco that's enabled him to pitch so well in the last two years? Yeah, I mean, first off, going back to Callaway, I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, it dates back to the first year with Ubaldo Jimenez. I mean, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, Ubaldo was pitching out of his mind and earned that huge contract he got. And then Scott Casimir, who was out of baseball, you know, Indians picked him up off the scrap heap working with Callaway and had a great year. And now you see the, the type of contracts and interest he's, he's gotten, you know, uh, since his time with Cleveland and Corey Kluber and Carlos Carrasco, you know, even something as simple as we were talking today uh, with Callaway about Ross Detweiler and how before he even signed with the Indians, Callaway was talking to him about, you know, a flaw that they had noticed in his stride on the mound and how they thought, it could help fix them. And that convinced a pitcher who was a, a minor league free agent to join the Indians. So it, it starts from the top guys all the way down to the minor league guys. This guy's reputation is, you know, starting to, to get around and uh, players are taking notice. As, Carrasco, as far as Carrasco specifically, um, it also goes back to when Kevin Cash was here and he was the bullpen coach. Uh, Kevin Cash really convinced Carrasco after the struggles in the rotation and Carrasco wound up back in the bullpen. You know, really convinced him to, you know, stay in the stretch and really take a very aggressive approach to every single pitch, to not pace himself, to not worry about, uh, you know, facing a guy, you know, later on, your attack. And when he, when Cash and Callaway convinced Francona to put Carrasco back into the rotation, they convinced Carrasco also to maintain that approach. He stayed in the stretch and he stayed with that aggressive mentality versus every batter. And it was more of, you know, don't worry about what you're going to be doing in the seventh or eighth inning. Worry about right now and go as hard as you can and as aggressive as you can, you know, for as long as you can until we take the ball away. And Carlos really bought into that. He really shortened down his uh, warm-up routine. He really stopped advanced scouting as much, you know, kind of getting in his own head about hitters and tendencies and more just decided he was going to pitch to his strengths and, and pitch very aggressively. And I think... You know, we've all seen, you know, what this guy can do when he's doing exactly that. Almost threw a couple no-hitters last year. I want a lightning round through a couple of quick Indians uh, questions just with yeah. you real quick. Do you believe that Danny Salazar, who it seems like every an analyst in the industry has been forecasting greatness for since he debuted uh, in 2013, do you think he's finally on the precipice of that monster breakout I think we all envision from him every year coming into the season? Yeah, I think so. I think last year was big for him behind the scenes. He finally learned sort of a, a every five-day routine that worked for him. And I also think when they sent him to AAA to start the year last year, 
that it sort of showed him the the idea that you need to earn the spot. You don't just get a spot. And I think that taught him a very valuable lesson early on. And he's really learned a lot from watching the routines of Kluber and Carrasco and picking and choosing what works for him. So I think this could be a very huge year. You know, while the spotlight is mostly on Kluber and Carrasco, I think Salazar could sort of thrive as the, the third guy who could maybe be a number one for many teams. Absolutely. Which statistical oddity from the second half was more surprising to you? Uh, Lonnie Chisenhall, who we've already talked about, becoming a plus defender <laughs> in right field, or Jeff Manship becoming one of 14 relievers since 1988 to throw 30 or more innings with a sub-one ERA? Oh, man, all aboard the Manship, right? This guy <laughs> went from, like, out of nowhere to the greatest reliever in Indians history. It was crazy, and it was all he said he did was he moved to the other side of the pitching rubber. I think that was uh, probably one of the more incredible storylines, kind of fun one to cover. Such a good good guy in the clubhouse. Uh, now he's earned a spot in the bullpen. You know, we've already talked about Chisholm Hall's. I will say, uh, Manship's turnaround was incredible. It, you know, I think every pitcher who's struggling should just move to the other side of the rubber and see if it works. His ERAs looked like the model number on a Boeing jet before he arrived in Cleveland. So, yeah, something else. Uh, I remember Tyler Naquin from his collegiate days at Texas A&M uh, and summer collegiate baseball, but how impressive has his performance been this spring and, and winning the center field job out of camp? Yeah, I think it was fun on a number of levels. First of all, you know, a lot of fans who follow the Indians will say, wow, they're never going to call up a prospect for opening day. <laughs> they're going to, you know, all they're going to worry about is service time and his future arbitration years, save a little money. Well, guess what? Tyler Naquin's going to be on the opening day roster. So in this case, they went with the guy who actually made the most sense, regardless of where he is in his career. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool. And then just also this idea of, you know, El Monte got the suspension. Brantley has the injury. And they sat him down in, in their one-on-one -on -one at the beginning of camp and said, hey, you have an opportunity here, go seize it. And he went out and did exactly that. He's been the best performing outfielder all spring, and they kept their word and rewarded him with a spot on the opening day roster. So I think it's a pretty cool story. Why does nobody like Carlos Santana in Cleveland, it seems like, <laughs> among the fan base? Why does he not <laughs> – why does he have such a bad reputation? I don't get it. I hear it all the oh, time. Oh, Yeah. There was a, there was an earlier Effectively Wild podcast where they were talking about players who are just sort of hated within their own local fan base, <laughs> and it's confusing why. Santana's the first guy that came to mind. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of Joey Votto in Cincinnati. The He's selfish. All he does is walk. You know, it's like, it's, you know, I also think there's just the antiquated uh, thinking that when you look at a batting average and you see 230, well, he stinks, he can't hit, or people wanting a 30 home run hitter and you know and we all know those just grow on trees around major league baseball these days so when he hits 20 homers i think there's this maybe absence of understanding about the value that he's actually bringing by hitting on base via walk a hundred times a year and hitting 30 doubles and homering 20 times i mean this is a valuable player um but he's you're right i think he's had he's such a streaky hitter that his slumps have been so brutal at, at times and I think just the the absence of a raw power hitter in the middle of the lineup sort of forcing him into that cleanup role has sort of, I, I think, the lofty expectations and his production, which are more in peripheral categories, just doesn't sit well with the casual fan. But, yeah, it's a mystery to me, man, because this guy is year in and year out one of their more valuable hitters, and they just he continues to be sort of the 
the fan that the angry or the player that the angry fan sort of latch onto. Jordan, a last question. I'll get you out of here. What's the most compelling player or storyline that you're looking forward to covering with this team projected to be the best team in the American League this season? Uh, I'm going to go with Trevor Bauer. I think this guy, oh, wow. you know, such a high, such a high draft pick, and at times has sort of, you know, he has his opinions about pitching, and the Indians have their philosophies, and they haven't always aligned. And so I think they're continuing to work together to try and find that middle ground of his views on pitching and the team's views on pitching. And he's in there in the rotation, and he's such a valuable member. But you know, I think he needs to really perform this year. Um, take that next step to continue to prove, you know, that he's got a, a long-standing future as a starter. Especially when you got guys like Cody Anderson coming quickly, Mike Clevenger coming quickly, uh, Josh Tomlin, who is very, uh, you know, liked among the coaches and teammates and things like that. So I think Trevor Bauer taking that next step this season will be a very, very interesting story to watch. Trevor Bauer is certainly an enigma. That that much can be said uh, about yes. him. Jordan, thanks once again for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Hey, no problem. So that's going to do it for our conversation with Jordan Bastian. You can check out his Cleveland Indians coverage all season long on MLB.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at MLBastian. Now let's send it back over to Ben Lindbergh to wrap things up. All right, that's it for today. Thank you to Pete Beatty and Jordan Bastian for coming on. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. Five people who've already done that. David Woody, Liz Pinella, Greg Mitchell, Christopher Gold, and Aaron Osicki. Thank you. You can buy our book. It's called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, and it comes out on May 3rd. It's the story of how Sam and I ran the Sonoma Stompers, an independent league baseball team, last summer. You can pre-order it now at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild. Email us at podcast at baseballperspectus.com or message us through Patreon. You can rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes, and you can get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription to the Baseball Reference Play Index by going to baseballreference.com and using the coupon code BP when you subscribe. We have two more teams to preview, but we will be back tomorrow probably with an email show, definitely a non-preview show. So send us your emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com and we will be back then. Cleveland City of Light, City of Magic. Cleveland City of Light, you're calling me. Cleveland, even now I can remember. Cause the Kai, the Hoga River, goes smoking through my dreams.